Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. My aunt phoned up and said, turn on the television now. I said, what channel? She said, all of them. She literally said, all of them. I turned it on and there's a picture of Peter Tobin on the screen. And the ticker tape was like, we're hunting for this man urgently in connection with the murder. And I just screamed. Daniel's come running down the stairs. Why is it, Mum? And I'm sort of waving a finger at the telly. Well, what is it? What is it? Because, of course, he hasn't seen this guy since he was three, four years old. And I said, look, look. And he said, what is it? I said, it's your father. Welcome back. In 2006, Kathy Wilson turned on her TV to see her ex-husband, Peter Tobin, on the television screen. Tobin was later found guilty of three murders, although it's generally accepted, and he secretly admitted, he committed ten times that many. You're about to hear how Kathy came to be married to one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, and how he kept it a secret from her. I should warn you, this episode contains a high level of graphic violence, domestic abuse, rape, drug use and murder. Kathy, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. Well, let's start from the beginning because I think the first half of your life explains the second half of your book. Mm. If I just read the second half of your book, I would be like, what? why isn't she just... Mm, leaving. Like, why not? You would never understand it. And I think also, like, understanding... That is just a general concept for other people that are in that, those situations. Mm. So your life with your mum, she had you quite early, didn't she? Yes, my mother fell pregnant when she was um, 14, happened when she was 15. So that wasn't the sort of best start in life, I don't think, and not expected in my grandparents' family at all. Were they quite prim and proper, were they? Yes, they were. My grandfather was a major in the Royal Signals, and my grandmother was a sort of a stereotypical of-the-time housewife who would you know, run the house and entertain his uh, work colleagues and comrades if you like and so yes so it was quite an austere upbringing from both my mother and her sister Anne they both went to both highly intelligent and they both did extremely well until Anne left and went off and got herself married and nursing school and marriage and then my mother unfortunately for some reason just deteriorated at the age of 14. And what age did she have you? Pregnant when she was 14 she had me when she was 15 and then to try and tie it neatly into a bow she uh, got married on her 16th birthday. Wow. Yeah, I know. God, that's happening quickly for a young girl. And what about the father? Was he around? Well, he was around, of course, for the uh, for the wedding. <laughs> um, but my recollection and what I've been told is that he was only around for about a year or so. They they tried to start his life together in a different area, um, started something new. I think they moved about 30, 40 miles away from where they were living at the time. Um, and I, th- I think they made a good go of it. But whatever broke down between them broke down. So then was my mother. Now she's very proud. I'm very proud. We were brought up to be proud. She couldn't go back cap in hand to my grandfather and say, do you know, you were right. I have made a mistake. She, she, it was just not in her ability to do it. So then she just tried to muddle through. And that's where the difficulties really came in, I think. You and your mum had quite a 
cool relationship though didn't you like early days like you would you'd be mm. off like having fun making money like how did how did she some of the things she did or you guys did to support you because you guys were dirt poor yeah that were quite inventive and quite fun i thought they were great fun i, I mean i only have some really positive memories of of those sort of times together my, my favorite one which i tell to all of my friends i don't really go into my background at all most people but i've got such a lovely funny story is that we were going out for a walk one morning because walking of course is free it was a sunday morning we were going past the local pub and my mother spied on the ground a screwed up it was wet a screwed up one pound note as we used to have then now obviously we have the coins and she was so excited by this one pound and, and we sort of worked out between the two of us it was back in the days we Drink driving was more acceptable. Pound coins were in people's pockets, keys were in people's pockets, and as they were coming out of the pub, they were rummaging for the keys in the pocket, and out would come a pound coin, a pound note, and just land on the floor. On a rainy evening, it usually would stick to the floor. So we took this one pound back, and this was a huge amount of money for us. We dried it out, we had a little fire, an open fire, we dried it out on a peg, on a bit of string. Um, and then we went to the local cafe and bought sausage sandwiches, which was my treat. You know, if I got that a couple of times a week, I was in, in heaven. And that became our routine then. So every Sunday morning, early as possible, sort of five, six o'clock if we could, we'd be down at that pub, particular pub, because it had a big car park, scouring around for these one pounds. One time, I think we got 10 of them one morning. And we had them all on pegs across the fireplace. I mean, to me, this is it was great fun. But of mm. course, looking in from the outside, it's, it's not normal behaviour at all. But for me, it was an adventure. It was fun. It was something we were doing together. And we got we got a treat out of it which was to go to the local cafe so there's no part of that that I couldn't have been happy about and what about the time that you guys were selling melons so my mother was an entrepreneur always trying to find ways of making money uh, not conventional ways most of them and we had this really really hot day living in Brighton and quite a famous band, the Bay City Rollers were playing a gig an open air gig at the top of a hill and this is before bottled water was a standard thing that everyone had with them or a refillable bottle of course now so she went down to the local market we bought watermelons specifically watermelons and these were cut into huge slices wrapped in cling film she called all of her friends there must have been i think there must have been i reckon there's 20 of us with crates of sliced watermelon walking up this really steep hill on this really boiling hot day and um flogging them i think for 20p is my memory to the people that were up there outside at the gig and they were they were lapping it up of course they thought that was great very inventive we sold out in seconds, went back down and made some more and did the same thing through the course of the day. I mean, who would come up with an idea to do that on a spur of the moment on the morning of a hot day? I think she's incredible. Oh, you loved your mum, didn't you? Very much, oh yeah. You talk so fondly of her and, mm. and you book and like just the spending time with her is what you... All I wanted to do, yeah. Uh, you know, in my early life, we had to move around an awful lot, which I later discovered is because we didn't pay the rent. We never had any heating in the winter, which I thought was because of the electricity and the power cut strikes that we had in 1970, but it was, and it was because we didn't have any money for the meter. But my mother was with me all the time, and we would have adventures. We'd go splashing in puddles and walking along the beach and, you know, the things I've just been describing as well. Uh, for a child who doesn't know any different, this was idyllic, absolutely idyllic, you know? Um, and in fact, partway through the time I was with her, she managed to get herself a job. And that's when I wasn't happy anymore because she was out at work every day and she wasn't with me. And I didn't know life without her being with me all the time. And that was difficult for me to cope with. When did the partying start? Uh, I think my mother had a, obviously a propensity towards drugs. Unfortunately, when she was at 14 at school, things started to unravel. It unraveled because her and two classmates had been found to have taken some drugs called yellow dollies, some barbiturates of some kind, and had to be hospitalised. They'd overdosed. My mother had to stay in hospital for a little while. So I think that kind of addictive personality was inside her. And I think she was always... She probably 
I think probably she needed a release from the difficulties of suddenly being 16 years old and a single parent with no money, frustrated, scared. And if someone perhaps offered her a lifeline to say, let's have some fun, then I think she would have jumped to the chance. I'm just guessing this because, of course, I can't ask the questions. And sadly now, because my grandparents have died, I can't ask them either, but they don't really know very much about what was going on. So I'm having to sort of work it out from pieces of paper I've seen, newspaper reports I've got, trying to work out a timeline of of how the events were until such times as they're in my memory at the age of about four, I suppose. You mentioned newspaper articles. So what did you see in newspaper articles? Uh, I didn't know anything about my mother's problems when she was 14 at school because no one talked about that. And it wasn't until I was 15 or 16 that my... I started asking questions because I found this lovely photograph of my mother looking beautiful, holding a baby, which was clearly me. And I went to my grandfather and said, oh, doesn't she look stunning? I presume this is me with mum. And he said, yes. And I said, look at her beautiful dress. And he said, well, people do tend to have a beautiful dress on their wedding day. And I looked at this with a bit of incomprehension. I think I was probably 14 and actually quite naive. And um, my grandfather, being the kind of stoical no-nonsense chap that he was, just turned around to me and said, well, that means you're a bastard, which is oh. technically the correct term. The bastard is correctly such a child born out of wedlock, but to me that was a naughty word that just kids were hurling around in the playground, maybe. Yeah. You know? So to be called one took me quite back. From there, I got a little bit more about the background of what had happened, and I was told that she'd had some problems with drugs at school. And I don't know where it came from. I think my grandmother must have given it to me rather than my grandfather, but she had a newspaper report, and in it, it was the local paper... And it actually had her name in there, it had the age of her, it had the type of drug she'd taken. So it was being reported on, and at this point I started to find out more about what had happened. So she gets, obviously she gets hospitalised, then we draw a line under that, Mm. and she'll never do that again. No, she gets removed from the school, because my grandfather was really embarrassed about the reputation of the school. So he, I've got a letter from him to the headmistress. It's a very reserved letter saying, I don't want the school to be under an embarrassment. I'll remove Jenny immediately, and we'll put her into another school. So they put her into the local comprehensive, which obviously wasn't as good as the grammar school that she'd been going to. But the grammar school wouldn't have her anymore. So she went to the local comprehensive. Nothing was discussed at the local comprehensive, as far as I'm aware, of her past. She just was changing schools. And so, yes, you're right. So at that point, it was drawing a line under, become a child again, and off you go. But clearly, uh, within six months, well, probably six months, yes, she had found the person that was to be my father. He was out of school, so she was obviously looking for something more mature than the the kids around her, the boys around her, because I think he was four years her senior. So uh, she was obviously looking for something more than the just the ordinary school education that my grandfather probably wanted her to have. So then... Your mum ends up bringing you up by herself because mm. your father doesn't hang around. Mm, that's right. And then when is it that she starts to disappear during the weekends and golf party? She could have been doing it quite, quite an early age, but my memory is from about the age of three or four. So she'd be with me quite a lot during the day and then she would just go out to go to the shops and maybe not be as quick as going to the shops should be but that was fine because I knew she was coming back it was not a problem and when she came back we we did some more adventures so there's no issues with that definitely what happened when she wanted to go away for longer periods of time I'd get dropped down to my grandparents we'd get the bus down to where my grandmother lived and I'd be dropped there for just the afternoon or sometimes overnight but I really just wanted to be back at my house with my mum my flat so I didn't enjoy that times particularly I, I wanted to be back there waiting for her when she came in and I think sometimes as she wanted to go out more and more often it would be embarrassing for her to be taking me to her 
parents all the time because they'd be asking questions about why isn't she at home looking after me. So she started to leave me in the house on my own, which was great. I was very self-sufficient. How old? Four, maybe. Wow. Hmm. I was okay. I mean, I, I just I just played. I don't even know what I did. I couldn't read or write because I hadn't been to nursery school. And later, you'll find I didn't go to ordinary school, either primary school. I didn't go to school until I was seven years old. So I couldn't read or write. So I know I definitely wasn't sitting around reading books. Mm. I probably was colouring in or something. I don't know. But I, I was fine. It didn't... I, I like being on my own. I still like being on my own. And sometimes she would go and she wouldn't come back overnight. But she came back. So it didn't matter to me. When she came back, what was the vibe there were times when she started coming back and she was very luckluster and she just wanted to lie on the sofa and go to sleep. But that was great because I could look after her. I could get her some water and make sure she was feeling all right. Sometimes she would be sick so I could see to that and care for her. And, and all those things made me very happy. It was, none of it was a problem. I just wanted her to be as happy as she could be. And then when she woke up and we went off to another adventure, off we went again. I know it all sounds terribly wrong and I'm a mother now and I would be disgusted if I found out any of my friends were treating their children in this way. But I knew no different and no one else knew what was going on. It was all hidden away from my grandparents. So there was nothing to challenge the thought process that this was normal behaviour. Didn't she start bringing her friends around? Yeah, definitely she had some male friends that would come round. They would just sit in the lounge smoking and laughing and i just entertain myself doing whatever I needed to do. But one day they came around and this guy was a little bit menacing and he said, uh, I've got a job for you, there's something you need to go and do. So there were groups of guys? No, at this point, there were a couple. There were a couple, a couple coming around together. But they were all just sitting on the lo- in the lounge on the sofa, just smoking That's smoking and drinking. Um, but he said, I've got a job for you to do. And he handed me a pack of tobacco and some Rizzlers. Well, that, that was not an unusual thing for me, because that's what my mother smoked at the time, obviously, mm. not having enough money for normal cigarettes. So he said, you can go and roll, roll, me, a, roll me a joint. So I, didn't, I hadn't heard the term joint before. To me, it was just rolling a fag or a ciggy or something. But he pulled out of his pocket, which I now obviously understand as an adult, was marijuana. And he showed me on the first one how he wanted me to put a bit of this marijuana into the tobacco mix and roll it. How old were you at this point? <laughs> maybe coming up to five. All right. Uh, maybe coming up to five. Okay. So I'd, I'd, I'd do this. In, but I was quite good at it, though, because I've been doing it for my mother for as long as I could remember, but not with marijuana in it. But I didn't know it was marijuana. To me, it was just another bit of tobacco. But what I did notice dramatically was that the smell from the smoke changed. Well, the room changed. It was a very sweet smell. I remember really distinctly the day that the normal smell of cigarettes changed to the day it smelled of drugs and it smelled nicer so that was that was a bonus for me <laughs> when but yeah and that would become a, a habit so this guy would come round with one or two maybe three of his mates and my job immediately quite, quite gruffly he'd hand me the tobacco and the rizzler and because they were quite big and intimidating to me as a young girl uh, I would go off and do immediately what I was told to do and he always wanted me to go into the kitchen to roll them so I'd go into the kitchen to roll them and I'd roll them three four five of these things and take them back in again and then one day he came around with uh, with this glass thing which I now know is a bong but I, I didn't know it was a bong I didn't know what it was for but he showed me how to fill it up and how to put the water in and how to get it all prepared so that was my second job now so when they came around I had two jobs I had to go into the kitchen and make the bongs and make the joints up for them but my mother seemed okay she didn't seem distressed by it all she laughed quite a lot of the time so she was enjoying herself and that's really all that mattered to me and I knew that when they went she'd be really happy because of course she was stoned but she'd be really happy and then we could have a nice cuddle and or go on yet another adventure somewhere. So it didn't feel at the beginning to be too traumatic to me. 
But then the vibe started changing. The words the guys were using when they came around were becoming very menacing. Like what? I can now in hindsight see that they were saying to my mother, if she doesn't do what they're asking her to do, that they're going to do something to me. I can see that because I can remember the looks in everyone's eyes. Everyone's eyes. I remember the men looking at me. I remember my mother looking really petrified and looking at me. And the dynamics in the whole of the situation completely changed. And that was how it went on from there onwards. You get these people coming around more and more often... They were very gruff. I knew to run off very quickly and do what I was told to do. I didn't want them to hurt my mother. There was one point where I think she really did say no to them and she was smacked across the room. So that, to me, was the first time I'd seen that happen. This all could have been happening over the course of a couple of months. This wasn't a protracted thing going over a year. It was a very quick escalation from something that seemed quite harmless to something that was was getting worse. And what I didn't realise at the time, but I did not, not much later, was that my mother is now vulnerable because of me. So I'm blaming myself. Because I'm there, my mother was having to put up with whatever it was they were asking her to do, and she might have had more guts to have said no if she wasn't scared about the impact it would have on me. That's a really, really big thing for me, and I didn't want to have a child because of that. I decided at that point I was never going to have a child in my life because I never wanted to be that vulnerable. Sorry. (laughs) I'll take your time. Can I give you a hug? Mm. Can I give you a hug? I'm all right. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Don't wash your coffee. No, Coffee's going to go. You're doing amazing. You're such a strong woman. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> oh, no, you're very kind. Thank you. I know. No, you're doing really, really well. Do you need to take a break? No, it's okay. It's just, it, I, this is not a word. I honestly made a decision never to bring the child into this world. Mm. And then because of him, we've got one. <laughs> yeah, anyhow, so this, uh, this kind of routine would, um, would, would happen very regularly. And then one day, uh, one of the guys came in and said, oh, you've got to take this. And I didn't know what this was. I thought, I've done all my jobs properly. Why, why, what, what have I done wrong? And it was a pill. And my mother screamed at them, don't give her anything. And then she got bashed again across the room. They'd all laugh. They thought that was funny. I thought, well, mum's going to get hit if I don't do what I'm told to do. So I took the pill, which was obviously some kind of sleeping pill. And I was told to go into the bedroom and just get out of the way. So that's what I started to do. And that was the routine. They would then come round. So it was just escalating. The routine would be come round. I'd roll the joints. I'd get the bongs ready. They'd laugh. Mother was just scared. There was no laughter anymore from her. She was just absolutely petrified when they came round. I'd be given a pill and sent off to the bedroom. What happened with her, I can only guess, in the time. I thought that was bad enough, but it got worse again. So there was one of the guys that came into the bedroom where I was in once I'd taken a pill. This was after a few times. And as I was getting very drowsy and going to sleep, he came and slept on my bed. And quite what happened to me after that, I don't know, because I went to sleep. But he would regularly come into my room with my pill after that, so I can only imagine. And my mum must have been horrified and so scared and so vulnerable I just can't imagine the emotions that must have been going through her, you know. And all I wanted to do was to try and keep the violence against her down. That's all I wanted to do. So whatever I had to do to make them stop punishing her for something she hadn't even done was what was important. One situation where these guys came round, um, and I don't know why we were all up, but we were all up, and he was really angry at my mother for something. 
And the next thing I know, he'd gra- she had this most beautiful long blonde hair, right down, halfway down her back, beautiful, stunning lady. And he grabbed her by her hair and dragged her into the kitchen. I'm screaming. I'm, everyone's, well, I'm screaming. My mother's screaming. Uh, he's sort of laughing and drags her over to the cooker and he turns the cooker on. I thought he was going to put her face into the flame of the cooker. So I go diving at him to pummel him off. He just swats me off as though I was a fly. And the next thing, he turned my mother's face around so it was away from the cooker, thank God. But he put her hair through it and her hair just literally burnt off halfway down. And she came flying towards me and landed on me, uh, and he had the remainder of her hair in his hand. He'd literally just burnt it straight off. Your granny came round at one point to try and sort stuff out, didn't she? Yeah, my granny was feisty. Uh, she wasn't scared of anything, bless her, but that's probably because she didn't realise quite how bad they were. So my grandfather had a chance to take early retirement, and he really wanted to get these people away from my mother and myself so he had an option of taking a a smaller lifetime pension and a lump sum and with the lump sum he bought us a flat uh, which was like an attic flat in Telscombe Cliffs near near Brighton so yes we used that we furnished it and it was our flat completely our flat and it was about 12 miles away from the centre of Brighton which is where all this had happened it was absolutely idyllic my mother managed to get a job in American Express which was fabulous first job that I was where she'd ever had. So we get to this place in Towson Cliffs and I'm happy and we start to go down to, there's a, in the local village hall they would have a, on a Saturday morning they'd have a projector and a movie and we'd go down there together, I think it was 10p each. And it, all, all just things that, fantastic stuff. So yeah, it was a really, really lovely time for a couple of months. And then I can only assume my mother, well she started to go out on the odd evening and I'd get dropped around to Granny's and then she wanted to go on a Friday and a Saturday night so I'd be at my grandparents for the weekend and I can only assume that she started going back to some of the places that she used to frequent because one day there was a knock on the door and all the men were in our new flat our lovely paradise flat with my cat and suddenly there were sort of ten blokes in the house and it just went immediately into how it had always been and that's when my grandmother gave me um, some coins for the coin box, uh, for the telephone box just down the road. And she said, I think you might need to use these at some point soon. And you must phone me when, when you think the time is right. So that time was right. So these men were there. I did my, the joint rolling. I made the bongs. And I thought before they start asking me to take the pill, I'll see if I can slip out and phone my grandmother, which I duly did. And she came running around. She got her car. She must have driven 100 miles an hour, but the cars only went 70. But she was there in flat, no time at all, on her own at our door, screaming at these men to get out the flat, and they just looked at her, because she was an old lady. And these are eight, ten guys, all young and fit and tall, and they just thought it was, a, it was ridiculous. My mother said, just go, you know, to her mum. I knew what could happen, so I said, oh, perhaps you should go. I thought she was going to come with the police or something, but she mm-hmm. didn't. She just came on her own. Why she thought she could do that is beyond me, but she was trying. Anyhow, after she went, the mood this was the worst time ever the mood changed so dramatically they were really angry with me threw me around a little bit but more angry with my mother that she'd allowed me to go and make the phone call but my mother didn't even know I was going to make the phone call and then they pushed me into the bedroom which was a shared bedroom my mother and I we had two beds in there and then they literally dragged her in by her hair and the most harrowing experiences that I've ever gone through really the most harrowing experiences I've ever gone through and I've gone through some pretty other horrible ones uh, was they literally just ripped her clothes off and they, they just raped her and I was made to watch it. And I didn't know it was raping. What I knew was that she was in a lot of pain, and she was bleeding, and she was crying, and she was screaming, and I was screaming, and there was no one there helping us. And I don't know why no one was helping us, but of course, my granny had tried to help, but at that moment, no one helped us. It was the worst day, the worst day of my life, that was. Hmm. So 
still got like I didn't even go through it, but reading the book, I've got images of what happened. Mm. It's just yeah, it took her from behind. All of them, or a lot of them, anyhow. Literally one by one by one, and made me sit there, and, and they held my head, so I had to watch it. How old were you? Probably about six, six to seven. So obviously, this whole thing had been going on for several years. It wasn't a short-term thing. It escalated very quickly, and then just became horrific. But it was clearly it was it was years. This was happening. And that really was the beginning of the end, unfortunately. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't find out until I was, well, writing the book, actually, that my mother had been injecting heroin three times a day. Not surprising, really, to get through what she was having to get through with these guys and what they were making her do, which explains why she was gone for long periods at a time. She'd, she'd be out overnight, next night. But it, again, as I said to you, not knowing it was quite, quite that, as long as she came back again, that's all I really cared about. And then one night she didn't come home. Um, and then there was a knock on the door. I knew it wouldn't be the men because they wouldn't be coming round if my mother wasn't there. They would never came round when my mother wasn't there, ever. Which meant they were with her somewhere, doing something. Mm-hmm. And it was my grandfather, and he just said, uh, you need to come with me now, Cathy. Uh, your mother's very ill, and she's been taken to hospital. Well, because she'd been away for several days, I was in the middle of making her a cake for when she came back, a nice chocolate cake because I know it makes her happy. So I said to my grandfather, I can't leave, I've just put the cake in the oven, so I have to wait for the cake. And he said, no, no, this is more important, we can just make another cake later. I said, no, no, I have to have this ready for when mum comes home, because she likes cake and it always makes her feel happy. So he had to sort of res- take a deep breath, and he, he waited while I, the cake was finished baking. And then he said, right, we need to go now. I said, no, no, we have to ice the cake. He said, we have to go. I said, no, no, it's got to be completely perfect for when mummy comes home. It's got to be perfect. So we had to wait for the cake to cool down, for me to mix up some icing and pour it on the cake. And it was only at that point I allowed him to take me off and we went straight to the hospital. And we get to the hospital, my grandmother's there. And my mother's lying in her bed uh, and asleep. And I sort of looked at both of them and thought, well, this is, this is just completely normal. This is what she's like. She comes home and she falls asleep and she's a bit ill. There's nothing except the fact there were some tubes coming out of her, which I hadn't seen before, because, of course, you don't get that at home. But to me, I was going, this is fine, she's fine, she'll wake up. This is like her all the time. And my grandparents were sad. And eventually, they, we all went home. And then we came back the next day. And at this point... I'm still saying this is just really normal behaviour. Sometimes she doesn't wake up for two or three days. It's all right. Um, I think my grandparents must have looked at each other and thinking we hadn't realised the severity of what was going on in our household for me to be completely unfazed by this. And I remember going back the third time after, after, well, later in the day, and she was still asleep and she was mumbling a few words. And I thought, that's it. See, she's waking up. So I told you she was going to wake up. Uh, and again, there are looks between them, which I didn't quite t- pick up on as such a young person, but I, I can now see as an adult the incredulity that must have been. And I said, well, I'm, I'm bored. Can we go home now? And I, can't, I cannot believe this day that was what I said. Because I, I was bored, because this was just normal. And there were no magazines to read, and Mummy was just asleep. So what was the point? Mm. You know. So... They took me back, and the next morning my granny came back from the hospital to say that my mother had passed during the night, which I didn't believe, because she never, she never dies. She always wakes up. And mm. I said, she was waking up when we were there, so she can't have died. So that didn't really sink in very well. But years later, of course, I'm so regretful that the last words I said were, I'm bored, can we leave? So. <laughs> Situation that you got put in. 
Mm. It's a tough, tough thing to comprehend for a six-year-old to understand what's happening and comprehend what's Mm. happening. Mm. And you only know what you know, right? Yes. Yeah. So it was a really difficult time in our household. My grandparents clearly must have been blaming themselves. Was there anything else they can do? They obviously realise now how bad it was. I don't think they realised the extent of what was going on. I didn't tell them, but it was just the fact I was normalising this whole situation probably made it very clear to an adult that it was extreme. And I think I talked quite innocently about making the the, the joints and the bongs, not knowing what they were. Mm. You know, they, I'd say, well, this is what normally happens. You know, the men come round, I make the joints. It just must have been all just coming out of me. And I think they felt so guilty that they hadn't intercepted. Well, they had done what they could. My grandfather took a lump sum, bought us a flat and moved us out of the area. I think he'd done as much as he could. And earlier in my life with my mother, when we didn't have any gas or electricity because we had no money, my grandmother used to sneak out two or three times a week and arrive at our place with foil-wrapped plates of hot food that she cooked. So they had both tried in their own ways to do something. They were so, so sad and no parent should have a loss of a child. How old was she? 23. That's so young. 23. Yeah, and beautiful. You found out when you were at school, Mm. actually, how she died, didn't you? Yeah, so I uh, was enrolled into the local... Well, I immediately started living with my grandparents, just informally. And they enrolled me in the local primary school. So that was the first time I'd properly been to school, except for the couple of months. When we had art class, this is when it happened. When we had art class, our job was to cover the tables with newspaper... I remember doing that. Yes, yes. That was the, that was the, that was the job of the children, wasn't it? To go yeah. to the cup, get the newspaper out, and then you get your big white sheets out and the watercolours. So I was putting all these newspapers out, and although I couldn't read many words, I'd still be trying to read the newspapers as I was putting them out. But this one piece of newspaper I put out, I recognised Jennifer Wilson, which is my mother's name. So I might not know many other things, but I, I recognised that, and I didn't understand it. I couldn't read the rest of the words. A uh, teacher came over and sort of, I heard the words that she died of drugs drugs overdose. Now, I've been told by my grandparents that she died of a really bad cold, which was in fact true. She did die of of pneumonia, but she died of pneumonia because she was a really bad heroin addict and who'd collapsed in an alleyway one evening and no one found her. So she'd got hypothermia and pneumonia as a result of it. So that is her official cause of death. But it was because of the heroin that she was injecting three times a day. No one had mentioned drugs. And again, I still didn't know these other things were drugs that I was involved with earlier. So, but I knew drugs were really, really, really bad. And I just started screaming. And I think I've been at school probably a month. So my grandparents have been really depressed at home, but I was just quite getting on with things. So I was probably clearly having it all bottled up inside me. And then this screaming, that was my release. And I screamed almost for a month. Not a word of a lie. I didn't go back to school for a month. I was screaming. I was screaming around the house. I was slamming doors. I was throwing things. I was having really bad tantrums, you know, because that was obviously all... That was. It was definite, it was happening, and it wasn't a cold. So actually, I'd been lied to on top of everything else. I was a horrible person for that month. Really, really horrible. But my grandparents just took it, which was very kind of them. It really wasn't until I was much older that I really sort of realised all the things that had, had sort of happened. Once you start piecing things together and going, oh, she was away for all that time. Oh, drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those men. And she had no money because this was before she was working or after she was working at American Express. So she had to do whatever she had to do to get the money for the drugs. So I can only surmise she was made to do things that she didn't want to do to get a fix. Because how could she be having three fixes a day if she wasn't doing something to get it? Mm. But we won't know the answers to that question. 
you started to do quite well at school because of that attitude of wanting to have a challenge mm. and you wanting to be at the top. Mm. So you start learning how to read and write. You, you smash through primary school. Yeah, by the time I finished primary school, so two years later, I, could, I was almost at the top of the class. Uh, so I entered secondary school feeling completely capable and I was put into the top sets for all the different subjects and I, I carried on thriving. I really did. And carried on until I was about 14 doing extremely well. Then you start finding motorbikes. Yes, yes. I'd just started a job at, um, at Robert Dias, which is a, D- a DIY shop in Brighton. Uh, I'd, I'd lied to them and told them I was 16 because you couldn't get a job at 14. So I was working part-time there, so I was saving money. And when I was there, I met one of my co-workers who was 18 years old, and that was me, smitten. He thought I was 16, so he didn't think he was doing anything wrong, and we started going out with each other. And, of course, that took me to meeting his friends. So I was now surrounded by young adults, so going into school every day, I, I was having three jobs. I was working in a chip shop, I was working in the florist, I was working at the Robert Dias. So I had money coming in, I could afford to go to the pub because I looked 18. I started smoking and suddenly the people at school were so uninteresting to me. Schoolwork became uninteresting to me. People, fellow classmates became uninteresting to me. I think that probably was the start of me losing the full steam that I had when I was, when I was, in, when I was in school. So how did you meet Peter Tobin? Um, I had my, my first boyfriend, as you know, and then uh, we split, um, and I met a second boyfriend who was a biker. He was 18. I was now 16 at this point. So I, with all my money I had, I went and bought myself a little 50cc bike as well, and I got myself a black leather jacket, and I got myself a denim over jacket. And we'd go to a pub that was in Brighton called The Hungry Ears. It was a heavy metal bar, and the bikers were down there, and it's on a wide promenade pavement opposite the pier. So all the bikers would line their bikes up there, and there were some big bikes. There was goosies and triumphs and stuff. <laughs> there was our little, my little 50cc thing, which was red, and his little 125, which looked pitiful in comparison we didn't care and we're going to the pub and we'd mix with them we'd play pool with them then this boyfriend I was currently with and myself went and got our first flat on the day of my last exam and we still carried on going down there but less often because now we had rent to pay we didn't have the support of our parents living in their homes so we had rent to pay so we had chastened means but we were there one evening and it was there that I caught the eye of this bloke who I'd not seen before who was talking into me a foreign language but it was Scottish and he seemed to have the awe of everyone at the table. They, they were just in, they were wrapped around his every word. So I wanted to see what was going on. So my boyfriend and myself went over and joined in the group of all of our friends and just listened to this guy telling tales of fighting in Aden and shrapnel wounds and working on oil rigs. And oh, I was completely hooked. And this was Peter. And this was Peter. How does he lure you into becoming... Uh, I think it took three weeks for him to lure me in. I initiated it by going and sitting at the table and listening to the stories, so I put myself into his path. We went and had a drink at the bar, I think. I told him a bit about my background, that my mother was dead, that I'd just left school, I'd just left home. All the things that actually he probably really wanted to hear. Clearly I was someone who was damaged, although you wouldn't know it from the outside. I was very glamorous. I used to wear very short skirts, great legs... Um, high heels, lots of makeup. My hair was always highlighted, you know. So I looked really strong and bold and confident, but actually inside I'm just a pathetic mess, really. And he's the kind of, as we now know, psychopath that identifies in that very quickly. But I didn't. I was just, I just liked the fact he was buying me drinks. That felt great because my boyfriend and I didn't have enough money to buy many drinks. So he was buying me drinks. He was telling me these stories. He seemed really interested in me and my background and what I've been through. And it was nice to talk to someone. And he was older. There's no two ways about it. This. 
not having had a father in my life when I was younger, I think I was looking for someone to take that kind of a role on, not consciously, subconsciously. And also the men that had been in my mother's life when I was younger, they treated me really badly. So my only sort of experience of an older man were ones that were horrible. And this guy wasn't horrible. Sorry about the interruption. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens about a year ago because it's super easy, efficient, and does wonders for your gut health. I noticed a massive improvement in my overall immunity, and I feel healthier than I used to. It costs you less than $3 a day, which is cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. But as I said, Athletic Greens is also going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel Travel packs to get you started. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And you'll be supporting this podcast as well. He was nice and I just I just fell for it really. I fell for his charms. I just lost my job. My relationship with my boyfriend wasn't very good. We had some problems and he just said, look, I've got a, I work in a hotel down the seafront. I could offer you board and lodging and a job. And by now, three weeks down the line, I was completely, completely infatuated. So I went back, packed up my stuff and left. And it was as quick as that. And he slowly starts changing your appearance. You mentioned before the bold on the outside, vulnerable on the inside, but he starts changing that on the outside look as well, doesn't he? Yeah, very, very quickly. He um, isolated me. And he did it in so many clever ways. He, I think one of the first things he did was come back with a pair of shoes that he thought might be more suitable for me. And they were just frumpy, ugly, flat things. But because he was quite short, and I was almost the same height as him, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe this is because he feels a bit uncomfortable with me towering over him. Maybe, so, you know, that's fine. I understand that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll wear these shoes to, so, to make myself more of an even height. And then he'd come back and he'd say, this, this is a much better looking sort of skirt for you to be wearing. This would look really good on your body. And, of course, it was a skirt that went almost down to the ankles. I cannot tell you how much I've analysed this over the years. I think my life with my mother would have been perfect if I'd had a father in it. That's my analysis over the years. And so, therefore, I thought, to make a nice life, I need a partner. I need to be like my grandparents, you know, married, forever, stable, secure. And I was looking for that, and I wanted to please. And my grandmother, being a stereotypical wife, would do all these things for my grandfather. She'd make sure the house was clean and tidy, she'd make sure the cooking was done. And so I just thought I should do that as well, because theirs is a successful marriage, and that's obviously what you have to do. So, And if my partner came back and said he thought these shoes would look nice on me, and I wanted to please him, I wore the shoes. And the next thing, it was, it was the clothes that went. And then he sort of said to me, your hair would be much nicer if it was just all brown. That would look lovely. And I had lots of blonde highlights in my, my hair at the time. So the highlights gradually disappeared. And then I think it was the makeup. This only took three months. It was so fast, this transformation. And I had no idea it was happening at all because I had no reference points anymore. Because rather than go out to the pub that we used to go to, two, three, four times a week, suddenly there were reasons we couldn't go. Maybe he thought that uh, we were busy doing something or he had other plans for us. Then he came back one day and said, oh, I bumped into one of the people at the pub and he was um, very derogatory about you. He said that you were the, the pub bike and by that he meant I was the one that had slept with all these guys. Well, of course, I hadn't slept with a single one of these guys. I'd only slept with one boyfriend, that's it. But he came back and told me this and he said it so convincingly that I believed him. So suddenly I was like, oh, I, I, I can't go down to the pub again because they all think this of me. And if they all think this of me, then oh, I, I don't show my face there. So I didn't want to go to the pub now. So it wasn't him trying to find reasons that we couldn't go. Suddenly I was suggesting we don't go. I mean, how clever is this manipulation? Mm-hmm. Only over three months. So from three months, I've been 
outgoing, brightly coloured, motorbike riding, you know, having a great time. Paul Shark used to play Paul down there and win. I, I, it's just, I just have great fun. And without me even realising it's happened, I'm now indoors most of the time on my own, not talking to any friends who might have said to me, have you seen yourself in the mirror, Cathy? Have you looked at what you're wearing and your hair and the state of you? You're just a dishevelled mess. Someone would have said that to me if I'd still had people around me. But I was now, without me feeling that I'd been coerced, I was now happily ensconced at home seeing no one. And it was quick as three months. You are thinking this is all your decision at the yes. time. Yes, it's very, very, very clever. I think the thing that really did it was when he... It's just the way he said it. You know, this would look so much nice for you. And I wanted to look nice for him. How did he convince you to have a baby with him? As I said earlier, I decided when I was very young that I was never going to have children because I'd seen the manipulative tactics that had happened with my mother. And I was convinced I was going to go through my life without a child. After our sort of first three months when I'm all nice and dowdy now, he came back because he didn't really work. He just kept going to the doctors every week and coming back with masses of bags of prescription pills, which he used to say were for his... Um, he was suffering with very bad headaches from the shrapnel he got in his head from Aiden, and he was suffering with arthritis in his wrists from shrapnel he got in his wrists from fighting and all sorts of things. So all he seemed to do was just go to the doctors and get pills and come back again. And he came back from the doctors one day with his bag of pills and he looked ashen-faced. I was very concerned. You know, what, what's, what's the matter? And he's just said, I had a scare at the doctors. Um, I've got cancer in my testicles. And I said, oh, well, can they just, I presume they can just sort of zap it like they do with breast cancer because I knew about that one. And he said, no, no, they, I'm not quite sure what they're going to do. But he said, once I have this operation, which I have to have very soon, because I'm dying, I won't be able to have children again. And this was a really big shock. Now, having children was, as I said before, clearly not on my radar at all. But being in a long-term relationship with this guy was. And I'd started to think, well, maybe if I'm in a long-term relationship, at some point later, I might want to have children with him. And if he has this operation where he can't have children, then logically I've got to have one now before the operation. And that was my mindset, and that all happened over 24 hours. It was very quick. It made perfect sense to me. This was a man that I wanted to please, I wanted to make happy, I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. And so um, I was going to give him a baby. So I came off the contraceptive pill and fell pregnant in <laughs> three weeks. It, wow. It, it was as quick as that. So the decision was now made. It was, it, was, it was less than a month from him telling me about the operation, pretty much, that I'd, I'd, I'd conceived. And then he went in for his operation. Yeah, so by now, I've had a really horrible start to the pregnancy. Lots of morning sickness, but then that's quite common. He was starting to treat me a little bit poorly at home as well. It, it, a bit too demanding. And it was a bit, a little bit, getting a bit rude to me and a little bit abrupt. So things weren't quite as happy as they could have been. But nonetheless, I still thought it was all fine. He was just worried about the baby. And now I'm about four months pregnant. It's definitely showing. And nothing I was going to do about it at that point, even if I might have considered it at an earlier stage which I wouldn't, but... Uh, so we go to the hospital, and he's in there, and he's being f- treated by the doctors, and they're getting him ready for the operation, and everyone's sort of smiling because he's all quite happy. It's quite a simple operation, apparently. One of the doctors came over to me and said, oh, congratulations, I see, you know, obviously, you're pregnant. I said, yes. I said, aren't I lucky I was able to get pregnant before he had this operation? And the doctor said, what do you mean? I said, well, he's going to lose all chance of having a baby after the operation, so aren't we lucky that I've conceived? And he said, no, that's not the case. He's only going to lose possibly 1% or 2% of a chance of having a child. And I said, that can't be right. That can't be right. And he said, no, that's exactly it. I said, well, he doesn't know that. He said, yes, he does. We've spoken to him very, very comprehensively on this subject. He knows exactly what percentage of abilities he's going to lose. And it's definitely only one or two percent. It's definitely not a hundred. He tricked you. He tricked me. Yeah. And it was just, I'm standing in the hospital bed, looking at him. He's smiling and laughing because he can be very personable when he wants to be. And I'm just looking at him thinking, <laughs> I, 
I was, I was incredulous. And I thought, I'm stuck. Now I'm stuck. There's just nothing I can do now. And there's just this realisation that he set out to trick me on this one. How old are you at this point? Just turned 17 because my son came in December. My birthday's in November. So I was 60, 17 in two months. You're very, very young. Very young. And how old's he around about? Oh, he's uh, 22 years older than me. So I'm 16, he's therefore 38. Yeah. Jesus, that's crafty. And when we got home from the hospital, I did query him about it because I thought, you have to you have to have known. And he just blamed the doctor and said, no, the doctor's got it all wrong. He's never told me anything like that at all. He's lying. I didn't quite know who to believe at this point now because I don't know the doctor, but I live with this man. So my inclination is to believe the man I live with rather than the doctor who's not even in the room anymore because obviously we're at home. But it definitely was always something that stuck with me. More so because I'd said I didn't want to bring a child into this world. And I knew instantly what it meant now because I know exactly how my mother was manipulated because of me. I could just see this life, not a brilliant life, sort of panning out ahead of me. Then you get to your, the day that you're going to have Daniel. Mm. This, <laughs> I didn't know, like, I was reading this part of the book. I'm kind of smiling now because I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> It's really not funny. No. It's really not funny, but if you're going to laugh at any part of the book, you're laughing at, this, at how ridiculous the situation mm. is. So there was a chap in, the, in this block that we lived in called John. He was an, old, uh, an old, older chap, and they used to drink together all the time. John would be in our flat more often than not, and I'd happily cook for the two of them because that was my job. By now, we're getting his, their behaviour's becoming much more erratic towards me. He's becoming, he doesn't really care what he says anymore, and he says it openly in front of people. He's just getting worse and worse. What sort of things is he... I'd be cleaning this tiny little pathetic room of a flat that we had, and then he'd come back and he'd say things were dirty, and he'd sort of smash my head up against the wall to look at the dirt that wasn't there. He'd regularly call me a bitch, and those, that kind of level of word, just for the fun of it. Um, he'd always moan that I'd got the wrong things when I'd gone shopping, then he'd throw the shopping bag at me, and then he'd demand the change, and he'd check the receipts through, and if I was a penny out, that would get thrown at me. You know, you can't be trusted with this, you're useless at that, you're pathetically incompetent at this. I was just belittled all the time, and all I wanted to do was please him. That's all I kept trying to do. And as this chap would come round and I was, you know, go and cook some dinner for us, so I'd go and get some dinner. And that was quite regular. Just before we move on from Mm. that bit, while he's abusing you verbally and physically, Mm. the key bit there is that you wanted to please him. And he was so crafty and so manipulative that you thought that he was right and you had messed up every single time. Every single time, yeah. Obviously, I'm clearly not a good enough wife. Because someone's listening to this will be going... If he's treating you like that, won't you just leave? Won't you just leave? Oh, and it's no, like, no, no, no. no. I've mm. got a problem here. I need to sort it out. I need to make him happy. Mm. Like, it's not as easy as going, oh, that person's a dick. I'm leaving. Mm. It's that person. I've upset them. What can I do to try and make it better? I've mm. got to improve. That's the difference here, isn't it? To me, uh, I had to work harder to be a better wife kind of person to him. Clearly, I didn't know how to do it properly because I, I hadn't had a conventional upbringing myself. So it's because of my inability to go from experience that I didn't know what I was doing now. And in that time, I will say in my pregnancy, there was one incident where he was so aggressive with me. He, I've made him angry. I don't know for what reason. It could be anything sky's blue and um he had a screwdriver in his hands and he actually and it was a flathead screwdriver so he actually threw it at me aiming for my stomach which was about six seven months pregnant at this point 
And that was the one. That's the only time. That was the one time I thought I've got to get out of here. So I gathered up some, literally some loose change, and I bought the local newspaper. And I went to the phone box and I phoned every single person in the newspaper that was offering accommodation. But the minute I turned around and said I was six months pregnant, they said, "No, I'm sorry, love." One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Counting babies in here, so I phoned everything that was in the paper that day. On the same day, he threw the screwdriver. That obviously was the bit that was too much for me which didn't make any sense. And so with my tails between my legs, I went back to the place. He'd gone out. He was always out. Gathered a few belongings in a bag and got my motorbike and went to my grandmother's house. And I just looked at her because I was mortified, mortified that I cocked up to this level. And she just welcomed me with open arms, come in, come in, come in. And I think I'd then told her some of it, but not a lot because I was too proud. And I blamed myself for everything. I said, clearly, I'm not good enough. And I'm trying to do the right thing, but, you know... I don't even know if I told her he actually threw the screwdriver. I probably didn't because that would be just me admitting complete failure. Because if I was a good wife kind of person, he wouldn't have had any need to throw a screwdriver at me. So clearly, it's because I'm not good enough. Still, mm. you must have really done something to make him mm. throw the screwdriver. That's yeah. what you're thinking. And I think I must have gone out. I did something. But when I came back, he's in the house. He's, so he's obviously followed me. He's come to the house. And he's sitting at the dining table with my grandparents, full of apologies. Really, really sorry. He didn't mean to overreact. He's tired. He's in a lot of pain. His painkillers aren't working. He's just changed his prescription. And because I just was so mortified, but more I was so proud, and I couldn't believe that I wasn't going to let this go wrong. The same thing that happened to my mother was not going to happen to me. I'm going to keep him as a father in my son's life because that's the reason everything went wrong for my mother is because the father had disappeared. So this father is staying. So I've just got to be better and better and better. So I went back with him that day. But the incident you're talking about was actually on the day I was went into labour. This neighbour, John, was coming round for Sunday roast dinner, and my waters broke, and the pain started. And it was a very horrible labour. It was a lot of pain, but I think probably all labours are, but it was really horrible to me. And I said, I need to go to the hospital now. And he'd opened a can of beer there, sitting on the sofa with cans of beer and fags and stuff. And said, well, no, you're cooking roast dinner. John's come round for roast dinner. He's having a roast dinner. And I sort of looked and said, but I'm in labour. I've got to go to the hospital. He no, no. He said, you don't do that. He's a guest in our house. He's expecting roast dinner. So you're, you're effing well cook one. And I didn't know what else I could say, really. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I needed his car to get to the hospital. He had the keys, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, how quickly can I cook a roast dinner? And then That's I was the other thing, because roasts take ages. I know, it's like a three-hour job. And I was trying to recall how long the labour should last. And it said the first one could be all over the place. So I didn't know, I didn't know if I was going to have time for everything. And all I just did was cook it as quickly as I could. And then when I said they'd had it, and then they had to stop and they had to eat. And if I recall, they probably even wanted a sweet. I can't remember. It was protracted. It went on for hours, this situation. I'm doubled up in agony. Tears are pouring from my eyes. And eventually said, right, that's okay. We can go to the hospital now. So we go out to get in the car. And he said, um, there's no petrol in it. You'll have to walk. <laughs> <laughs> he had to walk. It was probably... 
oh, not a million miles, maybe. We'll call it a million. Whatever it was, one or two miles, maybe. I don't know. But anyhow, yeah, we, I had to walk to the hospital because he said there was no petrol and it was my fault there's no petrol, of course. So I'm now, I don't know, I must be 10 hours into my labour at this point. First labour and I'm very young and extremely scared and I don't know what the hell's going on and I've got no one supporting me. And, and that was the start of, um, well, that's how it was really. It's horrific, isn't it? Didn't he make you guys move then? So you were in, you were in Brighton at this point and then... Was it Bathgate you guys moved up to? He showed me these pictures of a house, nicely painted, had a nice garden, and uh, he said, we're, we're going to take this one, I think. And it looked all okay. It, we couldn't go and see it for some reason, which wasn't explained to me. And I thought, well, we're going to move out for one-bedroom place, so that's good. We're going to have more room for Daniel and some space, because, of course, he wasn't working. I wasn't allowed to work, so was, there's literally the three of us in this one-bedroom place, just pulling our hair Well, I was pulling my hair out. I thought, maybe we get three-bedroom place. I can have um, set up my own little business in the second bedroom, doing something. I didn't know what, but, you know, I'll always make money. So we pack all our stuff up. Uh, he's got a van with John in it. I've got my car with Daniel and our cockatiel that we've now got, and we're, we're driving. So this is my first time on a motorway or anything. I've got Daniel strapped in, I've got the cockatiel strapped in, I've got goodness knows what else in here. I'm in a little mini, and I'm on this, following this truck. No idea where I'm going, really. And we kept going. I think it took maybe 10, 12 hours. I mean, I'm in another country, literally, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. The weather's got colder and colder and greyer and greyer, and we get there late in the evening. This turns out to be a place called Bathgate, yeah, in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> what? I know, I know, but you can't question it. You know, he just—it he, was—it was sold to me as this your dream, Kathy. You wanted to get a bigger house. Here is a bigger house. Look at the pictures. Looks lovely. It never occurred to me he'd, he'd find somewhere that was ten, twelve hours away. So I never asked the question. I don't think. You mentioned you couldn't get a job. Well, yeah, he wouldn't let you get a job. Yeah, so we're up in Bathgate, and I thought, okay, let's make the best of this then. So I said to him, look, I'm going to go and get a job, because clearly you're too ill to work. And he said, well, you have to make sure you get something that's got enough childcare uh, to pay for the childcare. I said, well, you'll do the childcare. You're at home. You're not doing anything. I'm not looking after him. I'm not looking after him. He said, no, you can get, you can get and he started swearing. You, you have to pay for your own childcare out of your, out of your wages. Well, uh, I couldn't believe he said that to me, for one. And then when that sunk in, I then looked at the jobs that were available for someone who was unskilled, who's miles away from home, basic office jobs, that kind of thing. And there wasn't enough money to get childcare out of it as well. Um, he didn't want me to work because he probably, well, firstly, he'd lose control of me because I'd have new friends. I'd be having conversations with people that he wouldn't be able to be party to. So that predominantly was probably the reason I wasn't allowed to get a job. But he didn't say it like that. He didn't, he didn't say you can't have one. He said, yeah, go and get one, but just make sure you pay for the childcare as well. So he wasn't telling me I couldn't have a job. Do you see? Mm. And I thought, and then I'm sort of thinking, well, okay, no, that's fine, because he is quite ill, and he is in a lot of pain, so, and if Daniel was playing up one day, it might be too much for him, so I, I'm justifying it. You're quite kind with the way that you describe the way that he talks to you, because when you said to him that you want him to look after Daniel, mm. his child, it's not that he just said you should get childcare, mm. it was quite... He was quite angry about it, wasn't he? Yeah, he was very angry about that, yeah. Oh, I'm not looking after that fucking boy, and it's your fucking job. So if you want to get a job, you can have a fucking job, but you're not, you know, I'm not looking after the boy. And I'm like, it's your child <laughs> it's that you asked me to give you. It wasn't a mistake, this one, was it? I didn't go down there. wouldn't do that because that would have obviously got me hit. But in my got mind... You hit. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I don't, at this point, I'm not answering back at all because I don't want to make him angry. You know, if I get a whole good day without him being cross and angry with me, then that's a win as far as I'm concerned. And not a win as in being scared, just a win as in, oh, I've succeeded. I've done everything right today. So that's good. It's just, it just completely was changed on its head. Looking in, you can see quite clearly that I shouldn't have been thinking like that at all. But I did. 
you even mentioned to him at one point that you wanted a divorce. Yeah, so this was our, so the job debacle had happened. We were only in Bathgate for six months in total. So at least the first three months was probably me trying to decorate the house and all the rest of it. So by month four, it had got to the point where he would go out and I'd be left at home with no money or anything to be able to do. And I think he'd, he must have just had another violent outburst. It was, must have been a particularly violent outburst that had occurred. And I just said, look, I think I need a divorce. And we were upstairs on the top floor of the house at the time. And he just went straight into Daniel's room, grabbed Daniel, and he dangled him. He's only two. He dangled him over the stairwell. So he'd fall down to the bottom of the staircase. And if you fucking want a divorce, I'll come after you and then I'll come after this and I'll kill him as well. I'll kill the boy as well. And my son is screaming. He doesn't know what the bloody hell's going on. So I thought, oh, that's a really stupid idea, wasn't it? <laughs> so I said, okay. Um, and from then on, whenever he'd go out, which was extensively, he'd lock me in the house. So he'd physically lock all the doors. He'd take my bank book, which had all my money in, which of course he'd spent by now. He'd take my bike keys. He'd take my car keys, lock me in. There was no mobile phones then. Cut me off, basically. This was all because I'd asked for the divorce. But one day I did run off. One day I did run off. So one day he went out and the doors weren't locked. And I thought to myself, it's got to be a trick because well, there's no pretense inside the house at this point of making a semblance of being polite to me. Because yeah, he was even bringing women home, he wasn't was bringing, he? Yeah, it was a, oh, at this point we've, we've gone spiralled down a black hole so far. It's crazy. Um, yeah, he was... Um, I woke up one, one night and there was in like a very fuggy kind of state and there was a woman in the lounge with him. Other nights I'd sleep through, but I could hear women being brought in and being taken to the bedroom and clearly being having sex. Other days I just thought, because I used to sleep with Daniel at this point. I wouldn't sleep in the matrimonial bed. I'd, just, I'd crawl into a very tiny little bed with my son. And I'd just sleep like a log, which years later was because I was being drugged. We now found out. But I didn't know that at the time. He was, I don't know how he was doing it, but he was drugging me. So he could carry on with what he was doing. But it was really getting horrific in there. He'd call me all sorts of names in front of these ladies if I was ever to stumble across them. Once I had to get involved... What do you mean? I wanted to go back upstairs to Daniel. I'd just come down to see what the noise was. And I wanted to turn around and go back upstairs. And he was just really demeaning to me and pulled me in and ripped my nightdress off and made me... Well, he raped me in front of this girl who looked off her head. So I don't know whether she knew what was going on. That finished and I went upstairs and cried myself to sleep. It was just horrible. And I, I just knew I needed to escape. And I just couldn't bloody escape because he was locking the door. And even if he hadn't locked the door, I don't know how... You know, it was just... It went on and on. But one day he didn't lock the door. And I thought, this has got to be a trick. No, you've got to, you imagine my mindset at this point. I, I mean, I'm feeling really weak, really vulnerable, pathetic, a useless mother, worthless, scared. And I thought, it's obviously a trick. He's going to be just standing outside the door when I open the door. And I really gingerly opened the door, and he wasn't there. <laughs> and this, this two months of relentless shutting me in, and he wasn't there. I just like pulled myself together in one second. I thought, right, this is it. If I don't go now, I'm never getting out of here. So I didn't obviously have my bank books. I didn't have my car keys. I didn't have anything. I got hold of a bit of money from somewhere, which I think must have been either something for the housekeeping that week or maybe he'd left some money on the side. I don't quite remember where the money came from, but it was, wasn't very much money. I grabbed hold of that, walked through our estate to the bus stop and then had to wait at the bus stop. And I was like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And you have to go past the bus stop to get into the estate to get to our house. And I was thinking, I am, with the level of violence as it was at that time, I, I thought, I'm going to be killed. If he finds out what's happened, if I don't get away, I'm going to be killed. Because I literally had Daniel, obviously, a bag of clothes and nothing else. How long were you at the bus stop for? 10, 15 minutes. It was a really long 10 or 15 minutes because I didn't know where he'd gone. Just didn't know anything that was going on. And I thought, I still thought it's a trick. It's a trick to enable him to beat the shit out of me. I, and that's probably what this is all about. Anyhow, the bus came 
And it took me to the bus station. And at the bus station, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, about the bus station, because the only thing I could afford was a coach. I got a coach ticket to go to Portsmouth, which is where my grandparents were. But the coach didn't leave till nine o'clock in the evening. So I'm now at the coach station, which is really the only mode of transport if you've had your car keys taken away from you and you've got very little money. But it was about six hours, and it was the scariest six hours I've ever had in my life. I'm sitting there, I'm holding my son really tightly, and I thought, he's going to come home and he's going to wonder where I am and he's going to shout and scream and then he's going to think, well, she's going to be in a couple of places and he's going to storm in here and he's just going to beat the crap out of me right here in front of everyone. He won't care. I was so scared. I was shaking. I had nothing left to get any food or drink for Daniel. He's crying, you know. It's cold. I don't think, even with all the things that happened before, that I've ever been probably more scared in my life at that point. And I was convinced he would kill me if he found me. Convinced of it. And, oh, my God, can you just imagine this feeling when the coach comes around the corner and I get on it and then it leaves and it's dark and every set... I'm looking at the window. Every set of lights, I think, coming by, I thought he's going to be following the coach. He's going to wait till I get... He's going to pull the coach over. He's going to say there's an emergency. Pull the, come on the coach and just beat the shit out of me in the coach. I, I, honestly, I had no illusions on this. I, I was absolutely convinced that somewhere in the next 24 hours I was going to get killed for defying him, you know? And I'm 18. It's far too young. Oh, my goodness. Mm. You made it back to your granny's, though. Yeah, so I arrived at my granny's about half past six in the morning. When I got there, she said, uh, you've got to phone the hospital. So she gave me a phone number, and it was a hospital in Edinburgh. And I phoned the hospital, and the consultant said, your husband's taken um, an overdose of prescription pills. You need to come back. I said, is he going to die? He said, no, we've pumped his stomach. He didn't take that many, but I think you need to come back. He needs, needs someone with him. I said, I'm not coming back. I'll never get away again. I'm not, I'm not coming back. And I didn't. But even up until that point, he was still trying, you know. You ended up letting him back into your life to look after Daniel and things and then... Yeah, so basically, except for this obviously one completely major incident where he dangled over the staircase, uh, Daniel dangled down over the staircase, which I understood was to control me, not really to hurt Daniel. I don't think he would have done anything with Daniel. I think it's just a threat he needed to make to bring me back in line again, which is a threat that my mother used to get given to bring her back in line. That's all. That's what it was. So I, I've never had any concerns about him being with Daniel. To me, it was actually imperative. If I could if I get my head around the fact that all the violence was towards me and I could just put it down to us not working and then look really clearly at what's happened in his time with Daniel, which although sometimes wasn't particularly brilliant, it was never abusive, it was never swearing at him, but that's all I thought of in my brain is he doesn't swear at Daniel, he hasn't hurt Daniel, and... It's vital that he has a father in his life because I haven't had one. And, and I've put all the blame of everything that went wrong with my mother because I didn't have a father. Even if I'd had an absentee father, that would have had us accountable to someone because he would have come around once a week, picked me up or something, or once a fortnight, would have seen what was going on. I probably would have talked a bit about what was going on. But having no one accountable to you, or for you to be accountable to, is what allowed us, my mother and myself, to escalate into such a really bad position. And I didn't want that happening, so I... I thought it was vitally important Daniel have his father. Having gone through it all in my brain and justified anything that I needed to justify and realised that he's never touched him in a bad way at all, I was then prepared to permit him to come back into Daniel's life. But not mine. 
he wanted us to get back together. So all of the conversation was all about come back, I love you, or what mistakes we've made. I promise nothing will be like it was before. It will be changed. But I knew I wasn't going back. So that, that was a done deal for me. I wasn't going anywhere back again. I, I'd been away now for a couple of months. I'd started to take pride in the way I looked again. I'd managed to contact one of my old friends who I hadn't seen for you know a long time, a year or so. And she came up. We went to the nightclub. We went to a nightclub. I mean, I can't even tell you what it's like to go to a nightclub when you've been stuck in the mm. horrors of this was just oh, a breath of fresh air. And I laughed. We used to laugh. So I, I definitely wasn't going back. That's that soft the cards, although it didn't stop him asking all the time. But I was happy for him to see Daniel with me being there. So he'd drive down from Bathgate, he'd sleep in his van. And I would go out with him for a walk along the prom. We went to the Isle of Wight on the ferry, uh, went to the park, played on the trains, that kind of thing. And that was all quite nice. Daniel was enjoying time with his dad. I was, like, watching them together. I was thinking, oh, maybe this is going to sort itself out. Obviously, I'm not going to be part of it anymore, but maybe this can work. So we, we had this going on for a while, maybe three, four months or something like that. And then one day he said, I fancy taking him to the park and somewhere else. Would it be right for us to go on our own? So in my brain, I've already said he doesn't do anything bad to Daniel. I've now watched a number of months' worth of exemplary behaviour. He's still asking me to go back, but we're ignoring that, so that's just him. So I said, OK, but I'll need him back for five. And didn't come back at five and didn't come back at seven. I'm phoning the hospitals at eight. And then I get a phone call. I think he must have phoned my grandfather, because I didn't have a landline. It was about midnight. And by now, the police were involved. And I think it must have been that he phoned my grandfather, who contacted us. And he'd had a call from Peter, and Peter was now back in Bathgate. He'd taken his son up to Bathgate. Back to Scotland. In Scotland. So he hadn't had no intention of going to the park and McDonald's and whatever. He had intended to take Daniel away from me. And once again, it was a bargaining chip to get me back. So then what do you do? How do you get, how do you get Daniel back from this point of view? Did you, did you speak to someone? or? Well, yes, you... the police were very helpful. Um, and they said, we need to get you uh, into court to get sole custody for your son. So they contacted a solicitor who met me at the courts at nine o'clock the following morning. And the judge does, does his judgy things. And before I know it, I've got sole custody of my son. And I thought, oh, that's great. Okay, what do I do now? They said to me, well, the problem we've got is it's sole custody for England. It's not sole custody for Scotland. He's still his parent in Scotland, so he's actually doing nothing wrong at the moment. He said, we can, we're going to apply to Scotland and you will get it, but it's going to take three or four days. I said, I don't have three or four days. He's threatening to do all sorts to my child until I go, unless I go back there. I've got to go back there. Three or four days isn't going to cut it. He said, well, it, it takes that long, but what we will do is we'll put an all-ports alert out, which is an alert which stops him travelling through any airport or ferry port etc so he won't be able to leave the country I said okay I said but he can do what he wants to my son for the next three or four days if that's what you're telling me he said yes I can't make it any quicker unless you can get your son back into England I said well I'll get my son back into England and that's what I'm going to do before I've got on the plane I phoned Peter not said anything about the court and everything obviously and said okay you're right I'll come up so you'll need to meet me at the airport I'll give you the plane so I get up there a bundle of mess complete bundle of mess not knowing what I'm going to find he meets me, and it's as though he's done nothing wrong. Oh, hello, pet. Hello, hon. You know, it's great to see you. Aren't we happy to see mummy, Daniel? And I have to play along with this. And we got back to the house, this lovely prison house of mine, which I thought I'd left. And he's being really nice. He's being absolutely nice to me. And I'm having to play along with this. And my brain is feverishly thinking, I've got to kidnap my son myself, take his van, and get back to England. That's what I was thinking I was going to have to do. That was my plan. And he probably thought that was my plan. So all the time that I was in the flat in the house then, which was three days, couldn't see the keys to the van or any vehicle anywhere. There was there was nothing visible at all. So I don't know if he'd done that intentionally. Of course he had. But I, I couldn't see a way of escaping. And in the meantime, I'm having to play along with this whole thing. 
So I had three days of having to do everything that needed to be done to convince the man that I was prepared to start a life again with him. But could we do it in Portsmouth? Because I think the main reason that I had failed, that's what I said to him, I failed being a good wife, is because I felt so isolated. But I think I could be a brilliant wife to you if you'd come back to Portsmouth so I'd have occasional chance to see my grandparents, that kind of thing. Oh, you have learned a few tricks. Haven't I just? You've become the manipulator. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. So it took, it took three days and I had to do everything he wanted sexually, of course. Um, because I'm pretending that I'm going to be the best wife in the world. And eventually he said, OK, yeah, I think you're right. We'll go back to your flat in Portsmouth, and then we'll find ourselves something bigger. And I'm going, that's worked? That's, that's, I can't believe it's worked, you know, because I, 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 I was running out. I didn't know what else I could do. There were no keys anywhere. I knew I couldn't do this bus route thing again because he knew about the bus route thing. And he loaded everything up, and we literally got in the van and headed south. And as we go over the border, I remember thinking, right, he's now in England. Now it's my son. Not his anymore. But obviously we've got a long way to go to get to Portsmouth. But because I thought this might be the way I had to go, I had already spoken to the solicitor before I left, and I said, look, what do I do when I get back here? And she said, you make the pretense of going out to buy a pint of milk to make a cup of tea. He said, you phone me at the phone box, and I'll phone the bailiffs, and before you get back to your place with the milk for the cup of tea, they'll be with you. I said, fine, okay. I'm absolutely petrified because I've, (laughs) I've never dared to go against him in such a manner. And I tricked him. I was elated and petrified at equal measures. I just didn't know how it was going to work. Tell the story, and it's like all happening so quickly. But this is so the course of days. Yeah. You are freaking the fuck out. Mm. You think this guy could snap and kill you? Yeah. Yeah, at any time. And I'd voluntarily go, went back. I knew his level of anger. I knew, well, I didn't know he killed people. But I, I really felt he'd kill me. It was a pretty horrific three days. And he was degrading to me. He made me do degrading stuff. And he made me do it in front of Daniel. What? Yeah. I, it was because he was, he was clearly wanting to show that he was in charge because he had lost control. So he'd made me perform sexual acts on him with Daniel sitting at the dining table. And he made me do it in front of Daniel. But I had to do anything. I had to convince him that I was going to give it another go. And I knew he needed to take back the control that he felt he'd lost. I understood his mindset enough now to know he had to feel that he was making the decision to take us back down to Portsmouth, just like he'd done with me before. He had made me think all of my decisions about dressing and acting were all my decisions. I had to make him think this was his decision. So, yeah, it was a pretty horrible three, three days. It's so brave, though. The instincts of a mother and mm. the protectiveness of a mother to do anything at all costs to look after their child. Oh, I'd have done anything. I'd have done anything. Absolutely anything at all. But I really knew that he had to think it was his idea. So by becoming subservient to him again, which is what I did, we were just in this van. And I just thought at any point, we're in a van. He could dump me anywhere now. Because at least before, there was the someone would knock at the door of the house and wonder where I'd gone to. But on an 800-mile stretch of road, he could have gone into a woodland somewhere and... No one will be any wiser. And yet this was before I knew anything about what we know he became. But that's what I felt he could do to me at that point. So then you go for your pint of milk. I go for my pint of milk, uh, leave him there. He, well, he, he sprawled out because he'd been driving. And so he, he lay down on my sofa. Ugh. And I went up to get the pint of milk, did the phone call, came back, and there were very, very, very big bailiff men, all in black, were at the doorstep waiting for me when I got in. And at this point I thought, oh, maybe I should turn them away. Because if I go through with this, 
There is absolutely no going back at all ever because I'm going to be the person that's got away from him twice and over and you know, tricked him twice. And I almost turned them away because I was so scared of the consequences of it. And I just took a deep breath and said, look, you've just been through this for three days and the drive. Just man up, get on with it. So I let them in and they chucked him out of the house. And his look on his face, at that, he wasn't angry. He was just absolutely astonished that he'd been fooled. He was astonished. The extraordinary thing here is that you think this is the end of the story with Peter. Yeah. You think you've cut him out of your life. Mm. But again, you go back to this thing of desperately wanting Daniel to have, have a, father. a father figure in yeah. his life. So once again, Peter is back in your life and you're letting him hang out with his son because you've thought, well, there's nothing that Peter's done to mm. hurt Daniel. He's mm. always been nice to him. He's always looked after him, apart mm. from the dangling over the staircase mm. thing. You start letting him go to his house. I can't emphasise how I believe my early life with my mother would not have been the way it was if I'd had a father in my life. She wouldn't be dead. (laughs) She wouldn't have got hurt. I wouldn't have got hurt, but she wouldn't have been dead. That's the most important thing. She's dead, and I can't do anything about that. And she wouldn't be dead, I didn't think, if my father had been around. Or another male figure that was representing that role. And although... We'd gone through this whole this kidnap thing. It had been a, a number of months had passed at this point. Um, I had a new partner, which was lovely. And so I felt a bit more emboldened, and I was being treated nicely, and I could see quite clearly how right and wrong things had been. And I was still trying to see if there was anything that I thought was concerning with Daniel, and I couldn't see it, and I just didn't want him growing up with the feelings that I've got of not having a father, and one who I, I thought had abandoned me. I don't quite know the reasons for their split, but that's how I felt. And I just didn't want him to have that. And a little bit of time had gone by. He had moved from his house in Bathgate, which was the one where I had to go and collect Daniel from, and he'd done another council swap to one that was in Margate in Kent, which was only about an hour and a half away. So he was closer. And he was saying this on the premise that he's trying to get closer to Daniel so that he could see him again. Uh, and I thought that was quite a constructive move. You know, he, he had made an effort to move to Margate. I thought, okay, well, there's there's one bit of effort from you, and I can make a bit of effort as well. It wasn't, of course, until later that we find out what he transported from Bathgate to Margate with him in his van when he moved house. He transported the body of one of his later victims. I went up and had a look at the house a couple of times. I took Daniel there for the afternoon or for the day, and then I'd drive him back again. Daniel seemed very happy with it. I checked the house out. The house looked like a nice house. Met the neighbours next door. They seemed nice. They have family. So I did as much as as I could, to be comfortable with myself, that it was somewhere where I was happy for Daniel to go and stay. And so... Were you not worried that he might kidnap him again? I know, I didn't think he'd ever do that again, because the reason he kidnapped him before was because he wanted me back. Right. But so much time had passed, that wasn't on the agenda anymore. I had a new boyfriend, we had a house together, Daniel was in nursery, I had a job. Our lives were completely different, I wasn't the same. So there'd be absolutely no point didn't even occur to me naively maybe but it didn't occur to me at all that he might be thinking anything like that and then he made an even better because he was only seeing Daniel once a month for an overnight visit really and he said I'm going to move closer to Portsmouth so he then moved to uh, a two-bedroom apartment in a place called Havant which is at this point eight miles away from where I lived so again all showing the efforts to be more included in his son's life and then one night he phoned me and said uh, he was having some palpitations. Well, he'd always had problems all through the time we were together, all the time we weren't together. He had all these drugs from the doctors from right at the beginning, and he always was ill with something. So he was having heart palpitations, one o'clock in the morning. So I 
drove up there immediately, collected Daniel, asked if he wanted me to wait around for the ambulance. No, I'll be fine. It's on its way. Just make sure Daniel's gone back to bed and he's all right for school. I said, OK. This happened two or three times, and eventually he gave me a set of keys. He said, look, just in case I'm really... Oh, I said I should have some keys, because if you're genuinely having a situation, mm. I can let people in. So he gave me a set of keys to the main block community door and uh, also to the flat door. And then one day he phoned in the middle of the night. This was quite a common occurrence, maybe four or five times, to say it was going on again. I didn't even bother to get dressed this time. You know, I was just shoveling a dressing gown and just getting the car. And as I got up there, I realised I'd gone out in such a rush that I had forgotten to bring his door keys in. And I thought, oh, God, I hope he's not collapsed and, you know, he can get mm. the door. Well, when I got to the flat that time, bizarrely, he's actually walking down the staircase with Daniel. He's, he's limping a little bit, but he's walking down the staircase. My thought was, oh, thank God for that, because I can take Daniel from here because I haven't got the keys. And I did say oh, I haven't got the keys. I said, you don't look too bad. And he said, no, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to go in and be checked out. I said, well, I'll wait. He said, no, no, take Daniel home. So I took Daniel home. As far as I was concerned, that, that was like a normal sort of occurrence, really. Next morning, took Daniel to school, went into work, got a phone call from Haven't Police to say they needed to see me. It was urgent. Would I like to bring someone along with me who I can rely on? They wouldn't tell me anything over the phone at all. So I go up to Haven't Police Station, they sit me down, and then, then tell me the story, only at a very low level at this point, to basically say that Peter had attacked two girls in his flat the previous night, and they were trying to find him. And it started with, have I any idea where he might be? Said, well, I don't have anything to do with him anymore. He's just moved to this area, so I don't know who his new friends are. All I can do is... Um, go through my address book and tell you the places that we used to hang out in Brighton but whether he does that or not I don't know and, I, and I've got a couple of names of his relatives I don't know the concern of what's gone on he just said they're trying to find him urgently and then they start telling me that what had happened the night before was two 14 year old girls had been lured into his flat had been plied with drink and drugs had been viciously assaulted and left for dead and, and I'm looking at the detective and I'm saying no that can't be right and they said yes it is I said no, it's not. I said, because, and I said, look, he's been violent towards me, but I was sort of, this sounds absolutely terrible, I was his wife, but he wouldn't do this to girls. He said, well, he did. And I said, no. <laughs> he said, seriously, they're in hospital. And I'm just sitting there dumbfounded by the whole thing. And then the penny drops that my son was in the flat the night before. And I said, my son was there. And they said, yes, we need to speak to him. Transpired is that Daniel had indeed been present in the flat at the time. The girls had been lured in because they saw Daniel there and offered the chance to do some babysitting. He then got a knife and made them drink the... No, they were drinking the vodka quite voluntarily, but he made them take pills with the vodka. And then he raped them both, sodomised one. And then when he'd had enough of all that, he phoned me up to come and collect Daniel. And then he turned the gas taps on in the flat and locked the door behind him with them both tied up and left for dead and gone on the run. Hardly the perfect crime. No, hardly the perfect crime at all. Then they caught him in Brighton, didn't they? Yes, so um, he was on the run for six weeks. I'd give them as much information as I could. They were backwards and forwards quite a lot. Uh, we had to have someone to actually speak to Daniel, uh, a proper trauma counsellor for children, because he had, in fact, witnessed some of what happened. He'd actually been asked by his father to go and get some ice. So he was in his bedroom. He'd been asked to get some ice. He went into the kitchen to get the ice and then came into the lounge to give it to his father. And apparently one of the girls, who had gone into a coma at first but now was out, had said that she'd screamed at Daniel to help, but he's four years old, he doesn't know what, he, what to do. So he'd actually got his son involved in all of that situation as well. Police were looking for him uh, six weeks, and eventually they found him in a cafe in Brighton that I'd actually given the name for six weeks before when I'd first gone in. So my information was useful, uh, and he was just sitting there having a cup of tea, and two coppers walked by and recognised him, and he was arrested. And then he was put down for 14 years. Yeah, 14 years for rape, sodomisation, attempted murder. 
as far as I'm concerned, obviously I haven't got to try and make Daniel and Peter happy families anymore. Mm. I'm never going to have to live under his oppression anymore. Daniel was four. He's got 14 years. He's going to be 18 before Peter gets out. So he'll be a young man at this point. And I really thought all around we're, we're now moving forward. That's what I thought. This is Peter Tobin, though. Yeah. He was released on bail. First of all, he gets released on bail. The probation officer at the prison, this is after only eight years out of the 14, knew I was very nervous about him coming after me. I said I was absolutely convinced he was going to come after me and Daniel because obviously I had not let him see his son and hadn't given him a photograph. And I felt sure that all he's had to do in prison is fume about me. So I said, you must let me know when he's released, et cetera, et cetera. Well, she phoned me after eight years and said he's about to get released next month. And I said, it's only eight years. Well, that's the way it goes. They're going to put him into Southampton, which is only 15 miles away from where I lived. But he'll have to sign on to his parole every week. I said, OK. So I said, can you phone me when he's been released? And he signed on to his parole. She said, yes. So the first week came, she phoned me and said, he's signed on. The second week came and she phoned me and said, he hasn't signed on. He's done a runner. He's away from his accommodation. He's away from the job. He's just gone. And we now need to find him again. Do you know where he might have gone? And I said, oh, I think I've been through this. So I, I said, you've got my address book in your files somewhere still. They're the only places I know. And we're going back such a long time. Anyhow, he went on the run. He was on the run again for a good number of weeks. At this point, I'm now petrified he's coming to find me. I'm wanting to spy holes in my door. I'm getting panic alarms given to me by the police. And then eventually I found him. This time, I think he was also in Brighton, but he was with some church hippie commune or something. That's how he'd infiltrated it. So they got him and put him back in prison and he got... And he's, I thought he'd served the rest of his 14 years. I thought that's what happened to you. Hmm. So I think he's got another, like four years on, I think he's got another six years in prison. Four years on. It was nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. My aunt phoned up. This all sounds really dramatic and made up. This is exactly how it happened. She phoned up and said, turn on the television now. I said, what channel? She said, all of them. She literally said, all of them. I thought, I don't know what's going on here because... I can't think of anything that could be... I think it's like Twin Towers attack or Lady Diana... No, I don't know what's going on. I turned it on and there's a picture of Peter Tobin on the screen with a different name written underneath it. Pat McLaughlin was written underneath. And the ticker tape was like, we're hunting for this man urgently in connection with the murder. And I just screamed. Because my brain's trying to commute. How can he have done that? He's in prison. I thought he was still in prison because no one's phoned me to say he's being released. I screamed. Daniel's come running down the stairs. What is it, Mum? And I'm sort of waving a finger at the telly. Well, what is it? What is it? Because, of course, he hasn't seen this guy since he was three, four years old. That's a long time ago. Lots of, well, it's not something we discuss. And I said, look, look. And he said, what is it? I said, it's your father. And I, Daniel's just gone silent. I'm in my brain working out it can't be it. That, that can't be it because he's still in prison. So there's obviously a mistake here and the name's wrong. So I think they've got the wrong photograph to go with the name because none of this is making sense. Within a short period of time, I phoned the prison up and find out he'd been released two years ago prior to this incident and no one had phoned to tell me. And he'd gone on the run and they were hunting for him, but no one, I didn't know that either. I had no idea about anything. And he put himself in this commune up in Scotland, a church warden, he was pretending to be a church warden and he'd been living up there quite happily. So, so if self-preservation is first, so I went down to the local police station in Portsmouth and I said, look, I, I, there was a picture of Peter Tobin on the front cover. I just said, I need to talk to you about him because that's not his name and I need panic alarms put in my house, please. And then I had to sit down and go through the whole story and they thought I was being ridiculous. Are these new police? It's new police, yeah. Obviously, yeah, they've changed over the years. Yeah, so. yeah. And they just think I'm being crazy. Eventually, I managed to convince them. They very kindly came out, and they gave me a, a push-button panic alarm for inside the front door and also a handheld one. He's on the run from Scotland, and I said to the police, he'll be coming for me. 
I, I tell you, he'll be coming for me. He's got nothing to lose now. If, you, if you're saying he's killed someone, he won't stop at that. So they very kindly started to take me seriously, and they put a CID officer on Daniel's school. I had, so I had to tell the school teacher, the headmistress and his school teacher, what, who Daniel was in comparison to this bloke. So all that's going on, and uh, there's coppers everywhere putting things in, and all the time no one knows where he is, and it's on the... It's, it's obviously, it's a police murder hunt, so it's on the news every top of the hour, every hour, so it's no getting away from this, it's just... Is he wanted for one murder? To, uh, one, murder. one murder. They'd found the body of um, the Polish student, Angelika Kluck, in the basement of the church. He'd actually been questioned the previous day by the police, along with all of the other employees of the church, called himself Pat McLaughlin, and they dismissed him. And as soon as they dismissed him, he went on the run. And by the time they found the body, which was sort of 24, 38 hours later, 36 hours later, they then obviously could tell it happened somewhere on the premises. And they then Where did they find the body? They, they worked out that it was done in the workshop. And then they went to contact him again. And of course, he's, he's gone now. Where did he put the body? Under the floorboards in the church's apse. There was a, there was a trap door up near the altar, for whatever reason. He'd actually taken the body from the... He'd killed her in the workshop. And then he'd carried her body outside and in through the church and up to the altar, opened the trap door, gone down and moved her to the far end. So he'd, he'd concealed her, which is why it took sort of, in total, sort of 48 hours to find her. But he concealed her quite well. And then from her injuries, one assumes, and with detectives, they worked out that it happened in the workshop and then he was the one in the workshop and then he's disappeared. So all that sort of came together. But the name used was Pat McLaughlin. So at least I was able to say it's not that, it's Peter Tobin. Then we were able to start linking him with other things he'd done. And then they realised it was the guy that had gone on the run two years before. So that was a bit useful in that respect to enable them to move quickly forward with some part of their investigation, I hope. Why did he murder the Polish girl? She wouldn't give him sex. He was after her for that. She wouldn't give it to him. She was raped as well as murdered, of course. The assumption is he, she said no, and he didn't like her saying no. And he doesn't like them saying no. He didn't like me saying no, so... At what point did police start to realise that he was involved in other murders? Well, firstly, on that one, he was on the run and he was, uh, he was coming down to Portsmouth, as I surmised, and he actually turned himself in at a hospital with a heart attack situation. And someone in the hospital, because it had been on every newsreel throughout the whole of the 24 hours, recognised him, called the police, and he was arrested. So he was arrested at that point in London Hospital for the murder of Angelica Cluck. Then we had a trial and he was convicted of her murder and he was given 21 years, which is a life sentence which it's not, but that's what they call it. And then I had a phone call from the police. So this was all happening in 2008, maybe sort of 2010 kind of time. And I had a phone call from the police say, can you come and start talking to us? I said, yeah, what? happy to help the police. I said, well, I, I, we don't believe that someone could do a murder of that magnitude with the thought process of hiding it and cleaning up afterwards and with the rape as well and the, just the viciousness of the attack. We don't believe that's his first one at the age of 60-odd. We think there must be more. And so they launched something called Operation Anagram, which involved between 100 and 400 officers at any point, I think. And it was detectives from all around the country. And they were trying to put a timeline together of where he was, in which part of the country, because he moved a lot. I mean, we moved together three or four times. They were trying to work out if he was in certain areas when there was a missing persons report of someone going missing. And they had a missing person called Dinah McNichol. She lived in Kent. She was going to a concert near Guildford on the A3 and she was there with her boyfriend and they got picked up by some hitchhikers. The boyfriend got dropped off on the M25 and the girl stayed on in the car with the bloke and the boyfriend never saw her again. So that had been the missing person report. And that one was initially dismissed because he was living in Bathgate at the time and I'd given him a timeline saying 
it wasn't at mine. Kent was not on anyone's radar. And it was only when the young man was went back and re-questioned again that they said they got into this car with a Scottish-sounding person. He had a child seat in the back of the car and he had a packet of old Holborn rolling tobacco in the dashboard section. And they came to ask me what car did he have? And I described the car that had been had used for the pickup apparently. I didn't know it was. And did he smoke? I said, yes, he always did roll-ups with old Holborn tobacco. Got him. Got him. They then did a, an awful lot of uh, squirrelling around on this and they then worked out that actually they, they thought Mark, that Kent was completely off the radar. But Kent was actually where he moved to two weeks later. Two weeks after this lady disappeared was when he did his council house swap from Bathgate down to Margate to be closer, I was told, to my son. So now they're getting close with this. They think, OK, it's just two weeks away. And now I've, come, I've become quite important. They want me to really double-check my diaries and timelines and everything. And it transpires that on the day that they had taken a lift from this guy, these two hitchhikers, was the day that he'd been to visit Daniel in Portsmouth with me and would have been driving back up the A3 to go anywhere because that's the road you go up. And it was on the A3 they got picked up. So they're really now thinking, OK, this is, this is, this is one. But they can't work out about the two-week thing. So they then go and do a fingertip search of his Margate house. And they're hunting all through the family that were living there that got moved out. All this fingertips, it was, it was on the news. It was, it, was, it was running on the headlines of the news. You saw the little tents up everywhere. And the forensics were in there for a while, days. And then there's tents in the garden, which the, you know, the overhead helicopters are capturing for the press. And then comes this news that digging in the garden of Peter Tobin, they've come across a body under the sandpit and this body's been concealed in black bin bags, da-da-da. And I'm hearing this. Obviously, I'm hearing about body. I'm also immediately thinking, I checked that house out when he moved there to see if it was OK for him to have Daniel staying over. And he was in the garden digging a sandpit for our son to play in. The same sandpit that there's a body underneath. You know, I'm, just trying to com- I'm just trying to get all this into my brain. I, I just, it's just too much. It's overloading. So the police reports were, you know, obviously it's got to be looked at, but we're suspecting it's the body of Dinah McNichol, you know. And then the whole of the thing changed, because on the telly the next day came, it's not her. What? Yeah, it's not her body. So it's someone else's body, they don't know who it is. They carry on digging, and then they find Dinah McNichol as well. It's two bodies? There's two bodies under the sandpit. <laughs> My God. I know, it's... How do you even process that? Yeah, you can't. And you're thinking, well, was Dinah McNichol alive for two weeks before he killed her? Or had he killed her and had he stored her somewhere and then built the sand, got the sand, thinking I'm going to move to Bargate, I'll build a sand pit. You just, I, you just can't compute it, can you? It's just too much. But it proves the police were right. This Angelica Cook in Scotland wasn't the first one. They're in overdrive now trying to work out who this other girl could be that's underneath there. And... It was pretty horrific with what he, what he did to them, which is all in the press. But, you know, to get them... Well, it's pretty horrific. You can read about it. But uh, they're trying to work out who the second girl is. And so they're going back again now of this timeline. And they realise they had this move from Bathgate to Margate. And that, that had happened two weeks after the Margate lady had gone missing. So they then look at Bathgate and they, they find this girl called Vicky Hamilton, who was a 16-year-old or 15-year-old. She had a bag of chips. She was waiting at the bus stop to go home. It's a really cold, snowy night. And she'd disappeared and no one knew anything about it. This was like sort of 17 years before, 16, 17, 18 years ago. So they had to check all the things and realise that he actually had a house in Bathgate, which was our matrimonial home in Bathgate, for six months. And including that six months, right at the end of it, was when she went missing. So they're thinking, right, could this be who this is? And they conclude that it is who this is. This, they conclude this is Vicky Hamilton, who was abducted up in Bathgate. We now can work out that he did that, for whatever reason he did that, 
He then transported her body down to his new council house that he's getting down here, because it's not up there anymore, the body's down here. And within two weeks of that happening, he's gone after Dinah McNichol and then buried them both under a sandpit in the garden. And that's okay behaviour. So then the police go back and do a fingertip search of the Bathgate house, take the family out that are living there, and they find in the attic, right at the back of the attic, they find the knife with Vicky Hamilton's blood on it, so, which is what he used on her. So that's definitely where it all happened. And then they came back and said to me, do you know what this timeline is? I said, no. He said, it's the timeline when he came down and stole your son, kidnapped your son and took him back to Bathgate, and you had to go to Bathgate to rescue your son. So when you were in Bathgate, did you notice any rooms that you weren't allowed to go into? I said, to be honest with you, I had other things that I was trying to deal with. You know, I'm trying to get my son back into the country. And they said, but there must have been rooms that were locked. I said, listen, I wasn't going to do anything that was going to antagonise this guy at all. So if he told me to go and cook dinner, I was cooking dinner. I wasn't going to start wandering around a house. So what they're saying after the event of that is that when I went up to do my rescue mission, the three days I was there, that Vicky Hamilton had already been killed and was somewhere in the house. And that after he had been picked up by the bailiffs at mine for the kidnap charge, he'd made his way back up there and then moved her down to Kent. And apparently the family in Kent that he was swapping with, they sort of confirmed it because when they were viewing the property, which is what you do before you do an mm. exchange, he'd said, uh, oh, you can't go into that room up there, it's, it's, it's got some problems in it and the door won't open or something. So they actually weren't allowed to... That's all written down in the newspapers. He didn't let them go into one of the rooms in the, in the house. He just said, you can't go in there, it's full of junk. Or, so it looks like that's possibly, well, almost likely, where she was being held. She was being held alive or dead? No, I don't think so. I think dead. I was there three days. Just so nonchalant about it, like getting people to come and visit you, like to look at your house yeah. while you've got a dead body in there. Mm. Didn't he admit to a psychologist in jail that he had committed a whole lot of other murders? Or yeah, he, he's, he's told a few people, mainly other inmates, that he's killed 47. And Operation Anagram did run for two years after those two bodies were found because, again, they could now got timelines for those two bodies... Again, what he'd done with them was too extreme for those to be his first ones as well. So they spent a long, long time, two years or so, it was running, with all these detectives trying to uh, see what else they could find, and they suspect him of all sorts. There's definitely one in Eastbourne, which was when I was living with him in Brighton, that is, is 100% really, but there's no DNA, it's too degraded and it can't be proved. But even that is still not enough for his viciousness, his callousness. They're quite comfortable that there probably are 30, 40, 50 other bodies, but we just can't tie it down. And if all these Operation Anagram people after two years couldn't do it, that's just unfortunate that it's, going to just, it's now gone to the grave, of course. So we'll never know. And how are you and Daniel now? How's Daniel? Daniel's lovely. How old's he? He's 35 now. Oh, he's just, I'm so proud of him. He's just grown up to be the kindest, most generous, patient, patient guy you could possibly imagine. He's very happy. He's got a good circle of good friends. And he doesn't seem, it's such a long time ago, you see. The Mm. actual things that he was physically involved with a long time ago. But obviously, he's been aware of his father all of his life. And all of this, not all of it, but a lot of it comes from you not having that father figure right mm. from the beginning, mm. but in a twist of the tale. Yes, yeah, so I, I think, yes, I think the whole of this started because I didn't have a father figure. The whole of me, the whole of the destruction that my mother went through was because we didn't have someone overseeing what was happening to us. My determination not to allow that kind of thing to happen again was the reason I allowed Peter Tobin to spend far too long in my son's life, and mine as well. Then in a really bizarre twist of fate, out of the blue last year, I got a phone call, and my father had hired a private investigator to track me down, had found me and was phoning to see if I'd like to, we'd like them in his life, me in his life again. How's that going? We have literally just 
started talking without any recriminations, without any discussions of the past, as though we met each other for the first time last year. So I'm not asking any questions at all about why they did the things they did. I'm just taking him as a standalone bloke who happens to be my father, who I get on really well with. Well, if he does want to know a little bit about your past, he can buy the book, Escape from Evil. It's out. It's probably one of the most full-on books I've ever read in my life, and I read a lot of books. Where can people find out more about it, and where can people get hold of it? I know it's available on Amazon, Escape from Evil. You have to make sure it's the one which says Kathy Wilson, because there is another one of the same title. And I think it's downloadable on Kindle as well. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I just can't believe someone that's been through so much turned out to be such a strong independent woman with tells her story so candidly it's a credit to you to how you've turned out how daniel's turned out and i hope the relationship that you can build with your father moving forward is something that that's very kind of you, is you. brighter than what's in your past <laughs> yes it is much more so and thank you very much for listening if you think uh, your workplace could use a podcast to reach a new audience or an existing client base. Pod Row Productions is now producing bespoke podcasts for individuals and companies around the globe. doesn't matter where you are. We can help you create content. For a free consultation, email andy at podrowproductions.com for more information.